You're listening to the podcast, What's Your Why? My name is Hannah Deacon and I'm joined by Professor Mike Barnes. We will be discovering why people we're speaking to have such an interest in cannabis. What motivates them? Who were they before they came into this industry? And how do they think things could improve for patients and the business sector they work in? We're taking an in-depth look into what makes people tick with an informal conversation which won't focus on finance or business outlook or commercials, but will focus on what drives them to be involved with the cannabis sector and the part that they play in bringing it to the UK and why it matters to them. Hello and welcome back to one of our podcasts. And today we can welcome Katia Kowalski, Head of Operations from VaultFast. Welcome. Hey guys, thanks very much for having me on. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, an honour to, uh, to be on here and chatting to you guys. It's exciting. Um, we're having an all-female series this, this time, aren't we? Except me. <laughs> Except yeah. you. We're going to have an all-male series next time. Oh, I don't know. But at the moment, moment all-female series. Now, I really so wanted that. to champion the women in the sector. Um, yeah, and start talking about why, because I, I, I probably say it's because I'm a woman, but I think women are the key to this sector. I think there's, you know, we're part, both part of the Women in Cannabis UK group, and there's some amazing women in there, which is really wonderful. So, anyway, welcome. I'm going off on a tangent already we haven't so. started you off on a tangent. <laughs> that's what podcasts are yeah, about exactly. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about you as a child school university who you were what you were like family anything like that that you want to talk oh. about oh that's um me as a child oh I've, I was actually talking about this with someone else um a few days ago and I've got a theory that as you get older you actually become more like yourself as a child that like this this weird period between like when you're in puberty and in high school and university um maybe when you first start working I think we we kind of pretend to be a lot of things um and as we kind of grow more into ourselves we become more like we are as children which I think's yeah I think it's quite interesting I think when you're a kid you you care less about what people think <laughs> um as a child I was quite shy and naive and just quite silly as a kid I wasn't super good at public speaking I think I actually I went to like speech therapy for a while which I think is quite funny my mom always says it's funny you like couldn't speak properly as a kid and now you're going on like live television doing things <laughs> um yeah I've always been I guess quite um, quite driven, inquisitive, interested in things. Um, I studied psychology at university. And where I, was that? Uh, at Bath University. I kind of became interested in psychology from about the age of 16. I went to, well, I guess, going back to a bit more about me and my, I guess, my strange accent as well. I don't I sound say, British. You're not, yeah, where, where... <laughs> I've, kind of, uh, I've kind of skipped over that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I feel like I've got a bit of a, a mixed identity um, and sometimes feel like a bit of a, a nowhere woman. Uh, my dad was American, my mom's Czech, and I was born in London, actually. That's where my parents met. Uh, lived here till I was eight years old. And then we, we moved back to Prague, where my mom's from, and grew up, well, I guess the kind of my biggest years um, from eight to 18. I was in Prague. Oddly enough, I had a British accent as a kid, <laughs> which is quite strange to think about now. Um, and within about three months of going to a, an international American school in Prague, it changed um, really, really quickly and had quite like a Canadian American influenced accent. And then I went to went off to uni in the UK. Um, I feel like I've always just felt quite a connection and felt like the UK is home. Um, mm. So it was quite nice to come back here for uni. Obviously, I've stayed I'm here since then, um, and now it's, 
I guess my accent's kind of shifted a bit more British, but Americans would say I sound British. British people think I sound American, and <laughs> my Czech is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what your Czechs like. What do they think you? Where do they think you? Uh, um, Czechs are confused. I think they they all think I <laughs> they all think I speak a decent amount of Czech, but then when I when I try to write an email, they're like, "Oh God, you're absolutely illiterate." <laughs> So I think, imagine it's an easy language. <laughs> yeah, so I think I just kind of, um, I say I'm from a specific country depending on who I'm speaking to. Yeah, so yeah. With, with Czechs, I'm always British or American, whereas with British people, I'm always American or Czech. I never <laughs> claim to be British around a British person. <laughs> um, so, so you did you um, psychology at university. What sort of led you to be interested in that, do you um, think? I, so I never, I feel like for a while I didn't really know what I wanted to study. Um, I did speech and debate and like mo- model United Nations when I was in middle school and high school. And I really, I really enjoyed arguing with people. So I was like, maybe I'll become a lawyer. I'd like to become a lawyer. Um, then looked into studying law, realized it looked a lot more boring than I had anticipated um, mm. and wasn't just arguing with people in a in a courtroom. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I studied uh, the IB. So you guys have A-levels here. I did the international baccalaureate. One of my higher levels was psychology. And I had this brilliant teacher called Mr. Crane uh, at, at my school. And within about like two weeks, I was like, oh my God, psychology is just so interesting. I was just quite drawn to it as a subject, um, found it incredibly multifaceted and nuanced which I guess pairing that to you know the cannabis space now I think I definitely find complex areas more interesting than things that are quite straightforward um I like things that don't have a straightforward answer and are quite difficult to solve and psychology is I think a great example of that uh, because it kind of it's kind of a science, kind of not, kind of a humanities. Um, it's really difficult to study people because people are incredibly difficult and complicated. Um, so I think that's why I found it really interesting. It helped activate a lot of like critical thinking abilities as well. Yeah, and I think I, I was quite stressed out about choosing what I wanted to go on and, and do in life. Um, I remember telling my mom, I was like, maybe I should just go study business, you know, so I can learn how to make money. And my mom's like, that's a terrible idea. Just <laughs> study something you like and then and then it will lead you down a path to what you're interested in. And then you can always, you know, figure out what you do next, which I think in this day and age, um, I think what you study is a lot less important. It's kind of about knowing how to learn and how to think and then you can go off and do whatever um which yeah i guess within the kind of drug policy and cannabis space you see a lot of that because it's such a new space people have come from all sorts of backgrounds yeah i went on to went on to study that um enjoyed psychology enough that then i went on to do a master's yeah i think from for a while i didn't really know what i wanted to do all i knew that i was interested in psychology i found humans and people fascinating and yeah, and it's kind of, I guess it's kind of led me here. <laughs> so what after, where did you go then after Bath and uh, or the master's degree? What Did you go straight into this sort of sector or did you go via somewhere else? Yeah, so I, I went straight into the sector. Um, I, I guess I started becoming interested in drugs and the kind of links between drugs and mental health problems and the effects drugs have on, on people from... About kind of my second or third year at university, I was assigned um, an essay topic, or I chose an essay topic called "What Comes First: The Drug Use or the Mental Illness." I was like, "Oh, this is a this is an interesting topic." 
I looked at cannabis and psychosis, read um, a, a lot of papers about it, uh, wrote an essay that I thought was really good. It was actually my worst essay I'd ever written at uni. I got the lowest mark out of everything I've ever done. So I was like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't be studying this. <laughs> do you think that was the subject matter or do you think that was because... Because did you think there was a stigma around what you wrote about? Um, I don't know. I think it was more just... I think what I found at university is the things I found the most interesting. I think I went down, down such a rabbit hole and just mm. read so much and became so like enthralled by it that I didn't actually do a very good job of just writing an essay. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas with essay topics that I absolutely hated, I just bang them out really quickly, do the structure correctly and mm. actually actually do quite well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think after writing that essay, it became quite clear to me that there's a lot we don't know about cannabis and psychosis. Basically, all of the, I mean, within psychology, everything's, you need further evidence, you need further research, we can't really draw conclusions with this, which is quite different to the real world where people are like, cannabis absolutely causes psychosis or absolutely doesn't. So I think from that point on, I just found it quite an interesting subject. I started reading a bit more about it, came across the, you know, the work that David Nutt does, generally became interested in drug policy. And I think that kind of started, started to plant a seed. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't entirely sure about what I wanted to do yet. Um, for a while, I thought maybe I could go off and study this from like a psychological point of view. Um, I was always quite a good student. I enjoyed academia, enjoyed learning. And I think I'd always kind of been in this academic bubble of being at university and, you know, championing critical thinking and evidence-based approach that I didn't really, I didn't really know what I could do outside of that bubble. So I was like, oh, it just makes sense for me to do a master's and then do a PhD and um, become a research assistant. So I think I, I knew what I was interested in, but I didn't really know how to apply myself properly uh, just because I hadn't had that exposure. Whereas I think for topics like, I don't know, subject areas like engineering or maths or business, I think it becomes a lot more kind of um, applied quite quickly, whereas psychology is just uh, tends to be more theoretical um, mm -hmm. and academic from that perspective. So um, did you feel uh, from day one that you made the right choice to join Voltfast? Yeah, I um I think I immediately felt like it was what I was doing was quite suited to my skills. Mm. After after writing that essay um and finishing my undergraduate degree, I went on to do a master's in health psychology, which is s similar to clinical psychology, but it's more about the kind of interlink between physical and mental health, which I think is fascinating and obviously psychology kind of underlies a lot of a lot of chronic illnesses as well. I specialized in, yeah, essentially specialized and focused on addiction throughout that, um, throughout that master's. And I wrote my uh, thesis on the next day effects of alcohol or the hangover um, and looked at a bunch of different oh, factors right. that influence hangover, uh, which was really cool to do because there's actually very little research on hangovers. Um, I was going to ask you, how do you cure hangovers? That's a, that's <laughs> a whole asking podcast. For a I wish. Yeah, yeah, it's just a friend, I know. <laughs> I I wish I wish the answer wasn't just to drink less, but it seems to it seems to be that um, I I, I well, was so interested. I, I know I know <laughs> it's not very interesting. Well, I was originally going to do my master's thesis on alcohol and creativity because throughout health psychology, I found that 
One thing I found quite frustrating about the course was that there was this kind of uh, narrative that obviously um, using substances, you know, leads to addiction and it didn't really focus on any of the, I guess, potential benefits that people experience from using a drug. And I couldn't really do research feasibly on cannabis or any illicit substances because the ethics for that would have just been a nightmare. So I basically could do things on alcohol and smoking. Smoking tends to be difficult to recruit for because a lot less people smoke nowadays. Um, so I was like, well, I'll do alcohol. And most of the studies that were done were around, you know, the negative impacts of alcohol. And I was like, well, you know, to be honest, loads of people that drink find it benefits their creativity somehow. You know, you've got all these writers and artists that were all known to use and abuse alcohol. So I was going to do a study on that, designed a study. I was really excited to get people drunk in a in a lab and pay them five pounds to um, to participate. <laughs> Knew I would have gotten loads of signups. You just go. <laughs> Um, but then COVID hit and oh. the, the university closed and everything had to be done remotely. So I ended up uh, being assigned a study that was basically the data had already been collected. And I designed a study around that to use the data and then produce a report. So it was a massive data set of from an app called Drink Less. And it was basically people inputting the amount of alcohol they'd consumed, what type of alcohol, the units, etc. And then a, there was like a a next day effect scale where they rated their mood, clear-headedness, sleep, productivity, things like that. Mm. Um, so I looked at the associations with that and I found it really interesting. And I think generally within kind of the drugs field, people focus a lot on the effects, but not necessarily on the after effects, like the come downs and the hangovers. Mm. Um, and yeah, there's very little research on it, mostly because it's a lot easier to get people into a lab to get drunk than it is to get them over the next day when they're on a hangover. <laughs> Indeed. So how um how did you find Voltfast? How did they or how did they find you? How did you get the job there? Yeah, so it's a really good it's a really good question. So uh, over the course of like the summer during lockdown when I was finishing off my thesis, trying to kind of figure out what what I was going to do with, with my life. Um, went through, yeah, just multiple existential crises of figuring out what um, what it is I would go on to do. And I started a blog, just like a, a blog on Medium and was just writing about drugs and behavior, drug policy, just things that I found interesting and that I was reading about, mostly just to kind of build up a bit of a portfolio and put my name out there, even though I, I didn't know how many people were actually reading my blog. And... Uh, one of my friends, actually, she sent me a link to Voltfast's website. I don't know how she came across it um, and was like, you know, you're, re you're doing all this research and writing all this stuff about drugs. You're, you know, really passionate about it. Come across this organization that seems to be doing something very similar to you. And I was like, oh, OK, cool. So I was, I was looking at their website and just at that point, I was kind of just applying for any old research assistant job I could find. None of them were really calling to me. So I figured I'll I'll just send Voltfast an email, um, send an email to the info box was like, hey, guys, you know, here's my CV. I've just finished my master's. I found, find drug policy and drug use just incredibly interesting. Don't have loads of experience in the field. But, you know, here's my 60 page dissertation, my CV and my blog. Um, if there's any, you know, opportunities for placements. I was honestly just like I was like just give me anything. I'll do anything. <laughs> I'll work for free. Um, and they got back to me after about a month um, in which I'd kind of forgotten I even sent the email. Yeah. And it was, it was incredibly easy and straightforward. Basically had a chat with the team. Um, they were open to doing internships and placements. 
I initially did a kind of a one month placement internship, um, which which seems to be the kind of vault fast method of recruitment, to be honest, because we've had multiple Try people. Before you buy. <laughs> we've had multiple people co- come to do yeah. a, a placement or an internship, and then you've they've got gone to make on sure to... people work as well, and it works for them and it works for you, and that's I think that's great. It's a good way to do it, isn't it? Have a month together, see if you get on. Yeah, especially with such yeah. a small team and yeah. such a niche sub- yeah. niche subject. Yeah, say that. Um, so yeah, after about a, a month, you know, doing bits and bobs at Vault Fast because. It, I think because it was such a transitional period during COVID as well, it was quite a weird time to be working for a, an advocacy organization. Yeah. And after about a month, I was kind of like, well, it seems like I'm like, I feel like I'm just kind of working here. So yeah. I was like, can I just, can I, can I have a job? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and that's, that's kind of how I fell into it, really. It's, um, yeah, I feel very like privileged and lucky to have found something I really enjoy doing just kind of by chance. And I feel like over... Over lockdown, I kind of created my own job for myself, which is quite fun. It's like when you can't find a job, just create create like your own, own job. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and just spent endless hours on Zoom um, with Paul over over COVID when I was wor- I was working remotely from Prague because mm. I figured there wasn't much point moving to London when I couldn't leave a flat. Um, yeah. So I was yeah living at home at the time and then moved over to London. Yeah, it's absolutely it's absolutely flown by. Mm. So what what do you love about your job, and what do you what are the bits that you don't like so much? Because there must be bits that are, are challenging. Challenging. So, what I love about my job is, I guess the the flexibility and able, ability to kind of express myself and do what I love, advocate for what I love, and not have, I guess, stigma attached to that. Like I'm I. I, I'm literally advocating for something I feel very strongly about and have the privilege to to you know be passionate about that in in my work. Um, I've got a lot of friends that work for you know massive corporations and it's quite a nice cushy job, but they don't really believe in what they're doing or they don't really yeah. see the the, the impact it has. They're just yeah, doing they're, something that's you know they're, they're a told. cog in a wheel. And I I get yeah I know what you mean that you. I've always felt, for me, I like to. I want to be part of the beginning, and the middle, and the end. Yeah, and, and kind of see the steps see you're making, what I'm doing, and how that impacts the end result. And I think, like you say, when you're working in a big conglomerate and you're just like doing an important job, but you don't see the fruits of your labour so much, that's not easy sometimes to feel, yeah, like motivated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think yeah. I do like the fact that I can. It's quite a rewarding job in that you know I. I do something and it has an impact. I do this thing and then that gets passed on to someone else and I actually yeah. see it, you know, happen and change in the real world, which yeah, is... which is important for motivation, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so it's it's quite nice to see those immediate results. I guess on the flip side, because we're such a small team and we're working in a very controversial, uh, you know, strange sphere, it's not always that easy. And so you can work really hard, but you don't, you don't see the result especially mm. within within the field that we work in it's a lot of it's not down to just us doing something it's down to us doing something and persuading someone else that that's what we should be doing mm. um it's frustrating so, at times yeah so it is it is frustrating but i think you know going to the patient conference last friday and having conversate you know constantly having conversations with people and hearing people's stories i think reassures me and kind of re-motivates me and reminds me as to why i'm doing the work i'm doing and mm. it's quite um, yeah, I think it's quite a privilege to be working in a field that, you know, 
has a lot of meaning and value attached to it, which is important. And I, I value the fact that I'm doing something I actually love and enjoy, despite it sometimes being frustrating, um, particularly explaining what I do to people. I think when I'm meeting someone for the first time and they ask what I do, I'm like, well, how long do you have for me to explain it? Because <laughs> explaining what I do is what I do is complicated. But um, I think it's also gauging how much how much I say and how much detail I go into. Because for someone, I feel like that when people say to me, what do you do? I'm like, how do I say I'm a campaigner in the in the medicinal cannabis I'm space. I'm a drug dealer a that shuts them up because they have no idea what to say to that. <laughs> it's a bit bizarre, isn't it? Ask you about, I mean, if I'm right and tell me if I'm not, advocates for both the uh, recreational access mm-hmm. and the medicinal access. Yeah. And we've always just focused on medicinal access because we feel uh, that getting into the recreational debate, which is a perfectly valid debate, will reduce the importance and impact of medicinal access do you do you find that tension do you are you able to advocate or is Altfast and uh, able to advocate for both simultaneously to how do you find that yeah i think it's a good question and i think it is challenging i think engaging with the medical arguments and with people that solely focus on medical can be quite difficult because people will kind of argue okay well if you're advocating for medical and recreational you just want to kind of see disguised recreational or blah 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 it's really important to separate the medical debate from the recreational one but i don't i don't see why the two can't coexist i think it's at the end of the day and i think something that we drive home at vault fast is the fact that like we need to see evidence-based and sensible reform, and that can exist for both medical and recreational. Sometimes the medical arguments that we see within the UK feel like a bit of disguised recreational, but people will say, oh, no, it's fine because it's it's medical. Um, whereas I think being quite upfront and separating the two um, can, can improve both sides of the argument. I do think it can be challenging to communicate um, mm. that to that to people, especially when you're, especially when you're engaging with people that, think only medical should be legal and there shouldn't be any recreational um mm. any recreational access um, i think that that can be quite challenging and there are those on the other side of the coin that think recreational access will solve all problems including medical because then you can go out and get your own and grow your own and everything else mm. yeah I fundamentally disagree with i think well i think when you're dealing with and that's what i mean that's what's difficult everyone is an advocate for their own lives and i think what's difficult is you know people do need to think about chronically or children and patients who are mentally and physically impaired who having a dispensary model and having being able to grow six work. parts of the garden doesn't work for them we want or they want clinically led prescribing and that's not and, and I again I get frustrated so I'm like, oh but it's because you're you know a big farmer advocate it's just absolutely nonsense it's not nothing to do with that it's to it's do about with safe that. it's about safe prescribing safe product knowing that when we as parents are not in on the earth anymore, that our children are safe and have doctors who are willing to prescribe cannabis-based products for them. And that is not, nothing to do with anything other than the love for our children. And I think it... I mean, I've had so many messages from people saying, oh, just grow your own stock, you know, and it's just really, really short-sighted. And I think that that's what causes the, the sort of division i think mm. in in the in the space that it, you're absolutely right it's two different issues it's very nuanced it's, there's loads of reasons why both are important but you can't i don't think you can sort of 
sit on the fence really you've got to I mean obviously you can in the organization you're in because Mm. that's your job but for me you know when I'm campaigning I can't sit on the fence and sort of say well it's it's, you know that's fine and that's fine I need to say I am advocating for people like Alfie and that's what matters to me because I think when you look at Canada I think that's the only thing that I worry about you look at Canada and what's happened since adult regulation is that doctors have disengaged more. And we know that because we, we talk, uh, you know, especially in Matt yeah, from Medical and Support has a lot of work going on in Canada with the research groups there. And that's what they say. They find it even harder now to get doctors to engage in prescribing for children, to get companies to do research. Because actually companies think, well, I don't need to do research anymore because I can use put my products in dispensaries. And that's something that really frightens me. Yeah, because you, yeah. you know, there's still there's still so much we don't know and understand about cannabis. Exactly. We can't just say, oh, you know, let's have a dispensary model and forget everything else because we mm. really can't do that. That doesn't serve patients. But it is very difficult and it's very divisive and there's a lot of strong feeling and it's very, you yeah. know, it and is I get difficult. the, I mean, I understand the kind of libertarian aspect to it. And I think course, that, yeah. and I think, you know, medical and recreational can coexist, but there needs to be a, a distinct line. A distinct you know, there's people line, yeah. that, people that would classify themselves as patients, but would just want that recreational market to be able to, yeah. you know, I, I think you, you're right. there's patients that need prescriptions and there's patients that don't need prescriptions. Yeah. And that needs to be recognised as well. Yeah. Because I there's think people that can choose what's good for them themselves, and, but they are still patients. Yeah. So. Yeah. Especially I think for, um, you know, patients that sit more on the kind of cannabis naive side that, you know, don't know, a, don't know a whole lot about mm. the plant and want that medical supervision. Of course, yeah. And then, you know, people that have, um, Whole... And medical products, because actually, and I mean, we've talked about this a lot, doctors will not, pres- I mean, they won't prescribe 30 grams of flour on the NHS. That's not going to happen. So we yeah. need to have companies innovating new products where we can still utilise flour, but not in a, it's in a more get a vape and pick, pick some flour out of a pot and put it in a vape. That's not, that for them will, is not medical. It is for people, but it's not medical for doctors. And that's what we've got to change if we want doctors to be prescribing. And I think that's, you know, that's really important as well is is the only way you'll get innovation from companies is if they have, you know, good research, good yeah. research and sort of the, the motivation because they know that they're going to get their products prescribed. And that, you know, that so. Yeah. yeah, I think it all comes back to just cannabis being really, really complicated. And it's not it it's, it's not an easy so problem to solve like most of the very contentious issues in the world it's not they're not easy problems but it's what makes it so interesting (laughs) (laughs) where do you see it going i mean you're probably more policed than anyone else so are you optimistic about on one side getting more medical access on the other side of the coin are you optimistic about um, the recreational um, legalization as well where what sort of time frame do you see on all that that's a good that's a good question um (laughs) We won't hold you questions. to it. Don't worry. We won't hold you to it, whatever you say. Uh, you'll, you've got the magic ball in five years' time. You'll yeah. see if I've predicted it correctly. Yeah. I guess to start with recreational, um, I think the UK is still a while away from being comfortable with recreational access. Um, I do think that there's good positive steps in the right direction. I mean, even the Health and Social Care Select Committee putting out that call for evidence and, you know, um, kind of an inquiry into whether our drug policy has been effective. I think all of those are steps in the right direction in terms of realizing our current approach isn't working. But I think now it's it's moving on to kind of what a, what a better approach would actually look like. You know, we've got 
evidence of, from Canada, from the States, um, emerging around what's worked with legalization and what, what hasn't worked with legalization. So I think we are moving in a direction that's like, okay, well, it's not about whether we should legalize and regulate or, you know, how we reform our drugs policies, but, um, yeah, how, how that actually comes into fruition and what works best. I think that's where the kind of caution sits. Um, so, yeah, I think with, with recreational, I'm, yeah, I'm... I'm cautious still because I don't think that the country at this point in time is is um, I think people are ready for it, but the government isn't ready for it. And it goes back to this massive disconnect between what the public want and what the public are ready for and where public opinion sits and what and the government being in their own little bubble and not really understanding what people actually want and think. Um, I mean, we've seen that with like YouGov polls endlessly now. Mm. Um the government's still going on about this kind of tough on drugs, tough on crime rhetoric. And, you know, you know, the, the public don't. Yeah, the there's a very small minority of, you know, yeah. social conservatives yeah. that still hold that view. Mm. Um, so I think, think it's because they don't know or they don't care. I think, it's, think a mix, it's a bit of both. <laughs> I think it's a it's a little bit it's mm. a little bit of both. Um, and I think it's I think we mentioned this. Or I don't know if we mentioned this when we were um, recording or pre-recording, but you know, cannabis and drug reform in general just isn't seen as this crisis issue. You know, yeah, we're yeah. living in a time when there's just constant political turmoil ever since like 2016 with Brexit. Like it's just been crisis after crisis. And yeah. so unless the issue that you're advocating for directly fits into that crisis, it's just going to get washed away. it affects a lot of people and is a policy that I think as well what we have to remember is that political parties are always thinking the next election if they can win and they will only start looking at policies that mean that they think people will vote for them if mm. they get it right and I think that's the thing that they don't think that this issue affects enough people for it to be a problem yeah so that's that's the other thought but what, so what do you about think about medical, medical? Yeah, yeah. About medical there's there's a lot of issues to address <laughs> I feel like you kind of have to break it down by um almost cannabis naive and cannabis aware um and look at it from like a patient point of view and a clinician point of view there's, there's so many issues to break down. It's quite difficult to see where medical cannabis will go. I think the the current model in the UK hasn't been working sufficiently. And th th there's a whole host of problems with medical access at the moment that I think solving one issue will just activate a whole host of other issues. So like awareness being number one, I think obviously it's difficult to engage with a market that you don't know exists. Um, I try and tell everyone about medical cannabis access. I had, I had a locksmith come around to my house yesterday to fix my locks and he asked me what, what I do for a living. And I was like, okay, well, here goes. Um, explain that to him. And he was like, oh, you know, like I, um, I'll, I'll occasionally smoke cannabis for like pain and for anxiety. You know, I do find it helps. It helps. And I was like, well, did you know you can get it legally on prescription? He was like, no, I had no idea. I was like, well, search medical cannabis clinic UK and like you'll be able to find stuff. So just... Um, and that, that's something that we need more of. And so I think awareness is kind of the biggest barrier in many ways. But if you were to make that 84% of people that have no idea that medical cannabis is legal in the UK aware, and then, you know, a subsection of that percentage of people went off to try and get medical cannabis legally, the market would be totally overwhelmed and those people wouldn't yes. be able to get access because clinics only have a certain capacity and there's only about 100 prescribing clinicians so it's this like multifaceted problem that needs targeting from all sorts of areas i i think that the key right now is getting 
clinicians on board, uh, which is all the work, a lot of the work that you guys are working on, um, stuff that we've been focusing on on VoltFast as well. Um, I think cannabis just becoming more of this medicine that can be used in everyday practice and mm. mainstream prescribing is what's yep. going to help. Um, as I think continuing to go on in, in this kind of echo chamber and uh, periphery medicine isn't isn't going to do a whole lot. So I think interventions that help broaden out kind of outside of the clinic model will help. But I think equally, I think it's going to be a really long time before we see it on the NHS. I think after the patient conference on Friday and um, all of these events um, over the last few weeks, I think show that there's um, there's obviously a disconnect between um, the industry and patients. And that's something that's, I think, being bridged slowly. And these events are helping to do that. But I think there's a disconnect in what's kind of actually feasible and able to be done and what patients are wanting to see done. Um, and I think that's, I think that's the issue that needs to be solved it's almost like expectation management definitely um, yeah. yeah yeah it's it's a challenging area to work in i think i assumed that medical cannabis would be a lot more straightforward but um, i think we think did in, <laughs> i think in some but i think in many ways it's more complicated than recreational yeah i think recreational yeah, is yeah. pr- pretty straightforward it's very much a yeah i guess a harm reduction and libertarian view around that whereas mm medical you've got a lot more people that you need to convince stakeholders involved yeah exactly and regulations and yeah all sorts well thank you so much for an interesting conversation thank you so much guys for having me thank you very much thank you for coming